Good afternoon. This is Nicolas Bornovis, president of Capital Inc. I am delighted that today we're hosting the second annual Capital Inc. Hong Kong Maritime Forum. Given the circumstances, unfortunately, we cannot be in Hong Kong with you physically. However, modern technology gives us the opportunity to be together digitally. And also it gives us the opportunity to open up this forum to the uh, global maritime community. I would like to thank the uh, Hong Kong Maritime and Port Board, the Invest Hong Kong, the Hong Kong Ship Owners Association, and of course, the Secretary for Housing and Transport for being our keynote speaker, and a tremendous thanks to the whole Hong Kong maritime community for embracing and supporting our forum in such a tremendous way. The theme of today's forum is Hong Kong Global Industry and Thought Leadership, Building on Tradition and Innovation. Well, Hong Kong has been a leading global maritime hub, and the Hong Kong maritime community has been one of the major of the leading contributors to the global shipping industry. Thus, the theme of uh, global industry and thought leadership is perfectly fitting. Hong Kong ship owners have gone through amazing challenges and transformation over the years. Resilience, flexibility, adaptability, and a rich industry heritage underpin the Hong Kong maritime community. So the theme of building on tradition and innovation is perfectly fitting. In line with the above, our forum today presents the Hong Kong maritime leadership addressing a global audience. And we're pleased to see that the vast majority of our delegates are from the international shipping community. We are starting with a unique session, uh, our forum. And the first session of our forum is Hong Kong's maritime community looking through the hourglass a journey in time. And indeed, we are going to have a travel through time looking back before we look forward, taking stock of how Hong Kong came to the present point, how and why it has become a major international shipping centers and what center and what lessons we can take from the past for the future. For this unique session, we have four major industry uh, participants who have lived through and actively contributed to the development of Hong Kong over the years. We have King Chow, Kenneth Koo, Richard Hex, and Tim Huxley. I would like to thank uh, Hing in particular because I first uh, broached the idea to him and he warmly espoused it and he helped put this uh, panel together. And of course, I would like to thank uh, Kenneth, Richard, and, and Tim for their amazing insight uh, and contribution to the development of this uh, session. Special also thanks to Tim Huxley. Tim has put together an amazing and unique presentation, very rich in material that will show us the development of Hong Kong uh, from 1945 to today. I think that's a kind of a first presentation. It's unique and without any further delay, I would like to uh, start with the uh, presentation. So let us show you the uh, presentation.
Welcome to Hong Kong. As one of the world's great cities, Hong Kong has always been a favorite place to live or visit. For those of us in the shipping industry, Hong Kong is even more special, as the shipping industry and its many great personalities have played a pivotal role in the city's development. Hong Kong's early establishment was founded on its position as the best deep water anchorage on the South China coast. But it is in the past 75 years since the end of World War II that Hong Kong has emerged as a major global shipping center. For Hong Kong, the Second World War ended on August the 15th, 1945, with the Japanese surrender. The city lay in ruins. The strategically important Taiku dockyards and Wampoa docks, which prior to the war had been amongst the busiest shipbuilders in Asia, were extensively damaged from intensive bombing by Japanese and allied forces. And there were over 230 wrecked ships scattered throughout the harbor. When Charles Roberts, the Taipan of Butterfield and Swire, the forerunner of today's Swire Group, who controlled the Taiku dockyards, sent a letter to his headquarters in London saying, B&S are back in business. It reflected the can-do attitude of Hong Kong companies and a determination to get the city back on its feet. It took a mere 10 months to get the harbor back to being fully operational and two years to clear all the wrecks. But four years later, after the end of the war, Hong Kong underwent an event that defined the future of the then British colony and laid the foundations for the modern shipping industry. The turmoil prompted by the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949 saw a mass exodus of people from China. Amongst them were many of the wealthy merchant class from Shanghai and Ningbo. Many sought refuge in Hong Kong, which saw a huge dramatic increase in its population during this period. Initially, many of these migrants had hoped that their move would be temporary and that they would soon be able to return to Shanghai. T.Y. Chow, who, was on, who was, went on to found Hua Kwong in 1952, sailed down from Shanghai on the steamship Kwok Sing, in which he had a 50% share, telling his young family that they were going on holiday to Hong Kong. Frank Sao, who later established Great Southern Steamship, the forerunner of international maritime carriers, felt that Hong Kong was lagging behind, far behind Shanghai in both appearance and development, and had every intention of returning home as soon as conditions would allow. But as he wrote in his memoir, I did not foresee that conditions in China would be turbulent for such a long time to come. In the end, we lost everything we had built up in the mainland. It's hardly surprising that having had to leave behind their businesses and homes in Shanghai, and with an uncertain future ahead, that shipping was an attractive industry for some of the recently arrived migrants. T.Y. Chow once told his son George, the good thing about being in the shipping business is that you can pack up, get on a ship, and leave any time you want. For many of the newly arrived migrants, the Korean War greatly helped but their trading and shipping businesses. Sanctions imposed on China meant there was a huge demand for a wide range of manufactured goods and raw materials. And the Shanghai diaspora reacted to the call for help from their compatriots, with much trade being diverted through nearby Macau, which being a Portuguese enclave was exempt from sanctions. With both the Korean War and the rebuilding of Japan providing high demand for shipping, 
the youthful Hong Kong shipping companies began to grow. Many of their initial deals involved participation amongst Shanghai migrants, many of whom had been friends and business partners before they had moved to Hong Kong. T.Y. Chow's first venture into shipping in Hong Kong was in partnership with D.L. Wu and George Cheng, the success of which allowed the partners to set up their own companies, respectively Hua Kuang, Thai Ship, and Ping An Steamship. Shanghai connections and friendships also allowed the Ku family to build their shipping business in Hong Kong. The bulk carrier Ramona, subsequently named Valleys after the Ku family's new company, was acquired for US dollars 105,060, thanks to CS Ku obtaining a loan from Wheelock Marden. CS Ku's winning bid was a mere $60 more than the second bidder. It was in 1955 that another Shanghai emigre, YK Pao, started worldwide shipping. Pao had been a banker in Shanghai, but was unable to pursue that career in Hong Kong, and so subsequently established an import-export business. When he branched into shipping, his first vessel was the Golden Alpha, which was a 27-year-old coal-fired 8,000-ton bulk carrier. Within 25 years, the worldwide brand had expanded to over 200 ships, the largest privately owned fleet ever assembled. The early acquisitions of the Hong Kong ship owners were all second-hand ships. YK Pao's Golden Alpha was just one example whilst Hua Kuang was one of many ship owners to snap up more surplus ships with the purchase of the King David, which had been built in 1941 by the UK government as a troop carrier and was subsequently named Hong Kong Venture. Frank Sao's first ship, the Ebonol, was built in 1908, 17 years before the birth of the great man himself. The 1960s was the decade when Japan emerged from the ravages of war to become an economic powerhouse. And the demand for shipping raw materials to Japan's industrial machine and to then export the goods manufactured meant there was healthy demand for shipping. This was seen as a golden age for Hong Kong ship owners who pioneered the Shikumisan scheme whereby ships were built in Japan and chartered to Japanese charters on long-term agreements. With the backing of these long-term charters, Hong Kong ship owners were able to secure finance for their new orders and build up a stable, recurrent income stream, which allowed them to further expand their fleets. For the Japanese, this allowed the growth of their shipbuilding industry, and with Hong Kong owners having much lower operating costs than Japanese owners, who were obliged to use Japanese crews, everyone was a winner. The stable income stream, which avoided the peaks and troughs of the spot market, was not for everyone, though and some Greek owners criticized the likes of YK Pao for adopting a banker's mentality, which is hardly surprising considering his banking career in Shanghai. Clearly, the Hong Kong approach worked. By 1976, Pao's worldwide shipping controlled a fleet bigger than the combined fleets of Greek titans Anassis, Niarchos, and Lemos, prompting Newsweek magazine to proclaim YK Pao king of the sea. Equally prominent as the exploits of YK Pao were those of fellow Shanghai emigre C.Y. Tung, who had arrived in Hong Kong in 1948. Tung built a diverse fleet under the banner of island navigation, and they were the first Hong Kong owner of container ships, with the formation of Orient Overseas Container Lines in 1969. In 1970, Tung's container ship, the Ge Yung, was the first Chinese full container ship to cross the Pacific. 
whilst the addition to the Tung fleet in 1979 of the tanker Seawise Giant, which had over 550,000 deadweight, was the largest vessel ever built, marked the peak of Hong Kong's ascendancy as one of the centres of global ship owning. As they increased their influence in shipping, Hong Kong's leading ship owners also took a prominent role on the global stage. YK Power's impeccable contacts with world leaders saw him have open access to the corridors of power, allowing him to play a role as trusted advisor to both Chinese paramount leader Deng Xiaoping and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the negotiations regarding the handover of Hong Kong. C.Y. Tung was also prominent on the world stage, and his belief in the value of education saw thousands of students attend the CY's university, his floating campus which travelled the world. In 1997, shortly before the handover, George Chow of Hua Kuang, with endorsement of the Chinese government, led discussions and reached agreement with the Taiwan Strait Exchange Foundation over shipping matters between Taiwan and the new Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. Whilst the 1970s had been a period of substantial growth for the Hong Kong shipowners, the world was entering a recession, which was to hit shipping particularly hard. The signs were there in the late 70s. In 1977, the global tanker fleet grew to 350 million deadweight, but demand was only at 250 million tonnes. With oil prices peaking in 1979, there was a belief that alternative energy sources would be needed and that coal was the fuel of the future. This prompted a huge wave of bulk carriers to be ordered, and with the tanker market in a downturn, the stage was set for the recession that changed the face of Hong Kong shipping. It was not only the decline of the tanker market and the huge bulk carrier order book that hurt. In 1979, the restrictions previously placed on Japanese shipping were lifted, bringing to an end the Shikuma-san deals that had been of such benefit to so many Hong Kong owners. High interest rates and the appreciation of the Japanese yen, the currency in which many ships had been ordered, also added to the owner's woes. When some charters began to default on their payments, Hong Kong ship owners were plunged into crisis. Whilst YK Power's worldwide shipping had foreseen the impending crisis and conducted a major sell-off of shipping assets, disposing of 140 ships between 1982 to 1987, Others were forced to undergo painful restructuring with their financiers, or even disappeared altogether. Whilst there is no denying the pain this period caused, it also saw opportunities which Hong Kong shipping was more than ready to seize. The repossession of ships by mortgagees saw a need for skilled ship managers and provided a boost to the burgeoning third-party ship management industry in Hong Kong. Wallam Group had been one of the pioneers in providing this service, and they were soon joined by others. Today, Hong Kong is the global leader in ship management and home to several of the world's largest ship management companies, with a technical operation of hundreds of ships for all around the world being overseen from Hong Kong. The recession of the 80s also produced new opportunities for Hong Kong ship owners. In 1987, two young Hong Kong-based British businessmen, Chris Buttery and Paul Over, saw the drop in ship values as a great buying opportunity and established Pacific Basin Shipping. Today, the company has grown to be the world's leading owner and operator of handy-sized bulk carriers, controlling a fleet of over 200 ships. During this period, Hong Kong's port changed dramatically. In the late 60s, the advent of containerization 
not only saw the birth of Hong Kong's leading container line, double OCL, but also fundamentally changed the nature of the port. The original go-downs and wharves of the inner harbour made way for the giant container terminals at Kwai Chung. Between 1972 and 2012, Hong Kong's port expanded 18 times its original size, as China's growing manufacturers used Hong Kong to export their goods to the world. Whilst the growth of other ports in the Pearl River Delta has seen Hong Kong lose the crown of world number one, Hong Kong is still an essential gateway to the world for exports from southern China. The 90s was a period of consolidation for the Hong Kong shipping community after the trials of the 80s. But one thing that that was beginning to preoccupy minds was the impending return of sovereignty over Hong Kong to mainland China on June the 30th, 1997. Whilst there was some trepidation regarding the handover, some saw it as an opportunity. When leading London shipbroker Clarkson's acquired a company in Hong Kong in 1987, the chairman replied to a question asking, what will happen in 1997 with the response, we will have an office in the best connected city in China. As it transpired, the handover went ahead smoothly, with no noticeable change in the way Hong Kong shipping went about its business. Indeed, reforms to the Hong Kong shipping registry saw the Hong Kong controlled fleet grow to become the fourth largest in the world. As the new millennium dawned, it was clear that the fortunes of Hong Kong and the ship owners were increasingly linked to the development of China. China's ascension to the World Trade Organization in 2001 set in motion two decades of growth as the People's Republic became the world's second largest economy. The demand for commodities to fuel China's growth saw shipping rates hit record levels, and Hong Kong ship owners benefited, although the caution instilled by the memories of the 80s ensured that they were increasingly careful with their counterparties. Hong Kong's shipping community reinvented itself again during this period, with the city becoming the hub for much of the sourcing and commercial management of cargoes moving into China. Many major charters chose to base themselves in Hong Kong, meaning other service industries such as trade finance, shipbroking, and legal services thrived. China's shipbuilding industry boomed during this period as it rose to challenge South Korea as the world's second largest shipbuilding nation. Hong Kong owners had been pioneers in ordering ships in China, dating back to the 1980s, when the industry was in its infancy. As global demand for ships grew, and new building berths were in short supply, the loyalty and commitment that Hong Kong owners had shown to the Chinese shipbuilding industry in its early years were rewarded, with the Chinese shipbuilders showing a distinct preference to take orders from Hong Kong owners. The post-handover period also saw the growth of mainland Chinese shipping companies using Hong Kong as a base. For many years, the Hong Kong offices of mainland firms such as Yik Fung and Ocean Tramping, which in 1995 became Costco Hong Kong, together with the China Merchants Group, were the main conduit for the acquisition of second-hand ships for China's own merchant marine. They were now joined by other companies with strong mainland ties, whose arrival subtly changed the landscape of Hong Kong shipping, but showed that a reduction in Hong Kong's attraction for shipping companies post-handover was unfounded. The global financial crisis of 2008 put the brakes on the record earnings that had been achieved for the early part of the decade, with the Baltic Dry Index collapsing from 11,793 to 663 in the space of just six months. 
Whilst markets improved in 2009 on the back of a stimulus package by the Chinese government, the damage to the shipping industry had been done for years to come on the back of a massive overordering of new tonnage in the boom years. For the Hong Kong owners, this was a storm that was braved reasonably well. Resisting the temptation to order too many ships, being careful with counterparties, and displaying their renowned skills in market timing served them well. For example, Hua Kwong called the top of the market with a sale of a three-year-old bulk carrier at $76.5 million, more than three times the price it had cost to build, and which was handed over to the new owners mere days before the collapse of Lehman Brothers precipitated the financial crisis. Having experienced so many peaks and drops since the end of the Second World War, what does the future hold for Hong Kong's shipping community? Hong Kong's obituary has been written many times, but still it bounces back. And as a former governor once said, never bet against Hong Kong. The number of ship owners may be less than its 70s heyday, and several companies have relocated away from Hong Kong. But the Hong Kong shipping industry remains in good health, with the third and fourth generations of the original Shanghai migrants now taking over many of the established names. Ship management continues to be a rapidly growing business, with Hong Kong's geographic advantage of being close to China and less than four hours from almost anywhere else in Asia, making this the best possible location from which to offer such services. Other shipping services, notably ship leasing, continue to thrive, but Hong Kong's biggest opportunity for the future involves embracing the opportunities afforded by the Greater Bay Area. The area encompassing the special administrative regions of Hong Kong and Macau, together with nine municipalities in Guangzhou, has been earmarked by the Chinese government to lead innovation and development and work together to lead China's technological advancement. Serving a population of over 72 million and with a commitment to closer integration whilst leveraging the advantages of the various component cities, the Greater Bay Area offers a growing, increasingly affluent local market for Hong Kong's established skills, and with a population larger than that of South Korea. Hong Kong remains one of the world's great cities and great maritime centers. And looking at how it has overcome the challenges of the past make us confident for the future. We look forward to welcoming you here soon. Well, Tim, this has been an amazing presentation, uh, and I would like to thank you very much for putting it together. I think it's a unique presentation, and um, I think it's a kind of a first one. So thank you very much. Um, we're waiting for Kenneth now to, uh, to join us, and uh, here he is. And uh, I'd like to thank you all for uh, putting this together and uh, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, uh, Nicholas. Uh, and hello to everybody and welcome to the first discussion panel of today. Uh, as, as you know, I'm joined by three leading figures from Hong Kong shipping community, uh, namely Kenneth Ku, the group chairman of TCC, uh, Ping Chow, the executive chairman of Wakong Maritime Transport Holdings, and Richard Hex, the chairman of Banmar Shipping and the chairman of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum. Now, we've just had a brief history of the development of the Hong Kong shipping industry post-war and touched on some of the trials and tribulations of the past uh, that the industry endured. 
Uh, turning to Kenneth and Hing first, as the leaders of two of our historic ship owners, does that legacy of the past influence the way you run your companies today? And have you ever felt that the past hampers growth and maybe risk-taking? Kenneth. Well, Tim, uh, first of all, today is a very special day for me. And uh, it's great that <laughs> for some reason, a great, a great coincidence that Capital Link is being, uh, the, the event is being held today also. Exactly 37 years ago today on December 1st was the first day I joined the family business. And, uh, you know, being, and this really gave me that opportunity to, uh, to reflect back. I, I think I was very fortunate um, because I was able to enter the industry when a lot of the patriarchs, uh, the shipping patriarchs of Hong Kong that you talked about, they were basically, you know, at their peak or at their prime, so to speak. So being able to learn under them, interact with them, actually in many ways shaped the way I actually, um, uh, 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 that I'm actually leading uh, the company today or, or, uh, or, or uh, 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 continuing what has, what has been uh, continued for the last four generations. Um, what 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 I what I feel was one of the biggest takeaways that I've had over the last thirty seven years on the Hong Kong shipping industry is the fact that number one nothing phases us, you know um, we 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 were not shaped by a couple of shipping slumps. Um, you know, basically, we all know your your excellent presentation mentioned that um, you know the 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 first generations went through some extremely seismic and traumatic events, um, so. It was really, it, and, and I think that what that really did was it, it fostered and developed um, the, uh, the, the, the qualities of, uh, of, of reliability, uh, respect, and trust. And that in turn came from the need during those days of turmoil for the whole industry to get together and help each other out. So when, when, let's say my grandfather used to talk to me, I was in my early teens already about being reliable, being trustworthy and all that. He wasn't just talking about how do we brand ourselves. And in his days, I remember him saying that that was the difference between surviving and not surviving. That was the difference between life and death. That carried on to the second generation in form of a lot of the business dealings that was being done. Well, you mentioned the Shikumi Sens. A big part of that was indeed forming relationships with our Japanese friends way back in the 60s by helping them out as much as they helped us out. You mentioned the, uh, uh, how Hong Kong owners, you know, really was that literally at one point that sole driving force uh, that enabled the Chinese shipping industry uh, to, be, to stand where it is today in, in these lofty heights. That was the same thing. There was that wish to go back to China, help the, help the Chinese shipyards build modern ships and through Hong Kong owners to promote the ships, promote their products. So there's a lot of that, uh, a lot of that that's going on. And that in turn uh, also created what I call uh, legacy relationships that are so important. So I'm sure there are, you know, our, you know, you mentioned the Greeks and, you know, uh, our friends in Europe and all that, you know, they're, you know, certainly they have their fair share of legacy relationships. But in, uh, let's say, my formative years, legacy also meant the opportunity to grow up with a lot of the chief executives, chairmen and, you know, of shipyards, uh, uh, charters and all that you know, where they are today. I, I was fortunate to have known several of them uh, when they were production managers in yards or they were assistant chartering managers. 
Um, I, I think part of, for, for me, being able to grow up with them uh, was in and of itself another, another, uh, you know, a, 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 another critical, uh, I would say, a, a, a critical event, uh, if you may, that helped mold myself into uh, what I am today. So yes, indeed, I, I think the, uh, the, the legacy continues. And many times when I talk, I say this to my staff a lot, when they hear me talk, I, I, I tell them, it's not me talking, it's my father, KH, talking. Is my uncle KW talking? And it still resonates very deeply in me. Ping, uh, do you feel your um, your ancestors standing behind you? And uh, th what influence have uh, they got on the way Ma Kong is today? I think absolutely. Um, I cannot agree with Kenneth Moore on two fronts. A is that the camaraderie within the shipping community, as is well known to you and Richard, is extremely strong. Whenever something is happening in the market, we come together, we exchange thoughts. So rather than looking at ourselves or at each other as competitors, we're really part of the same community. And we see as our, the different companies as uh, friends across many different generations and uh, really part of the big family. And we oftentimes work together, not only to exchange ideas, but we promote the interests of the industry through representation at international level, um, through uh, sitting on the executive committee of Hong Kong Shipowner Association, but we also exploit a lot of commercial opportunities together through joint ventures, et cetera. Now, speaking more from um, a Wagon point of view, um, for me, coming back into the company several years ago, um, a lot of the things that I went through as a child or as when I was growing up sort of come back to my memory very quickly. Um, an astonishing fact, actually, um, as I ease myself back into the business, is the amount of support, as uh, Ken has mentioned, that is not only coming to me from within the company or even from within the family, but indeed, uh, legacy relationships, such as, you know, when I was trying to learn more about the company history, I talked to you, I talked to Kenneth, I talked to um, Uncle Sisi Tong and many other people. And this amount of support I've got is just overwhelming. It's almost as if um, all the other um, peers within the shipping industry in Hong Kong want to see me as an individual and want to see Wakong as a company succeed. And indeed, you know, um, when I, because I'm also a bit of a historian, when I go into the market today to try to do a deal, I also see a lot of repeating patterns um, in the things that my father has done or what Wakong has been through. And indeed, you know, Hong Kong's position as a gateway, as you have so eloquently put it in your presentation, into China and as a platform connecting China with the rest of the world. Now, circumstances have changed. China plays a much bigger role in global trade and economics than it did 30 years ago, 50 years ago, but the fundamental role of Hong Kong hasn't changed. And I think, you know, by looking back into the past and looking into the ways in which uh, my father, my grandfather, how our ancestors have gone about uh, to overcome and seize opportunities and overcome difficulties, give us a lot of inspiration um, and there's a lot to learn from these lessons as we move forward into the future. Richard, you uh, certainly, I'm sure if you put your mind to it, could have established a huge family business in shipping, but you actually started your career uh, working for a private ship owner, a China Navigation, and then you moved to a listing company. So you're, you got your both sides of the story. I mean, were there any specific advantages of being based in Hong Kong that stood out for you uh, in both the private and the public sector? 
thank you very much, uh, Tim. Uh, also for your excellent uh, film presentation, which was first class. So um, a slightly unconventional start, I think, to my comments. Hong Kong has got some amazing beaches. It's got some of the best walking trails in the world. It's got fantastically warm weather. It's got beautiful views. <laughs> we have an amazing range of sports you can do here. Uh, it's, a, it's a cinch to travel out to so many uh, fantastic destinations. I think we've got more restaurants per capita than almost any other city in the world. We've got amazing venues like cinemas and like museums, including, of course, the Hong Kong Maritime Museum Get and wonderful warm people. So the point is to start with, Hong Kong as a city to go to is an amazingly attractive city for all sorts of um, expatriates as well as local people to live. So that's, that's why Hong Kong's a good place to be because you know it's 24 hours in a day and it's not all about shipping. But if you look at a, whether you're a listed or a privately owned shipping company, Hong Kong has got probably more technical expertise than any other city in the world. We have uh, commercial expertise, insurance services, financial uh, expertise, some of the most accountants of any city in, in China. Um, the people here are incredibly hardworking, they're great friendly colleagues. Um, there's an amazing port here. As we all know, Hong Kong was once the biggest port in the world um, in terms of containers, but now has spread its expertise to the other ports in the Greater Bay Area. So for any type of shipping company, there's an extraordinary infrastructure to support what you're doing. But then as a listed company in particular, you probably know that Hong Kong in, the, in seven of the last 11 years had more IPO activity than any other stock market in the world. And um, in terms of the infrastructure for capital markets, whether debt or equity, um, all the investment banks are here, all the capital raising facility you need, all the big uh, lawyers, whether US or British or, or European or other um, law firms are here. So um, as, a, as an infrastructure for a list co, it's also terrific. Uh, Tim, does that answer your question? Oh yeah, it gives us a pretty good idea, but let's look at somewhere that uh, preceded Hong Kong. Um, the, I mean, Shanghai, that was the origin of much of Hong Kong shipping in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and Shanghai has now re-established itself as a maritime centre. I mean, are we going to suffer from competition from Shanghai? Or is it a totally different market? Or, or has the pie of China, a China-related business, got so much bigger that our slices have been growing? Kenneth, you were a pioneer up there building green capes, the first owner to order a ship at uh, SWF Shipyard. So, uh, and, and of course your family roots go very deep there. Coexistence or competition? Uh, you know, it's coexistence, most, most definitely, Tim. I, I over the past few years, I've, I've led a, a couple of Hong Kong Ship Owners Association delegation, and namely our China subcommittee, um, specifically to, uh, to look at collaborative uh, uh, kind of endeavors that we can work with together in Shanghai. Uh, what, one analogy that I always like to use, you know, for those of whether we are Chinese or non-Chinese, if you get into these old classic martial arts movies, the sword fighting, there's often, this, there's, there's often this plot about the search for two magic swords that if they're combined together, it was going to create all kinds of, you know, you know, power and what have you. And that's the analogy that I that I used when we went to see the municipal government and all that. You know, Hong Kong and Shanghai. Um, number one, it's very it's very rare 
that you have two major international maritime centers. You know, Hong Kong and Shanghai, the latter of which, of course, recently has been ranked uh, amongst the top 10. Uh, it's very rare to have one country with two uh, renowned international maritime centers. China's, China's economy, China's growth in terms of ports, in terms of uh, shipping related uh, uh, logistics, and the sheer number of ship owners up and down the coast basically means that you do need that two-headed dragon, um, you know, to to you know to 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 really help China ascend to you know newer new newer levels of strength, uh, newer levels of influence, whether it's maritime regulatory or shipping. I think I feel that that's that's so important. And then the other thing is, you know, when you really look at uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai, yes, there are overlaps. But that at the same time, they have their own areas of expertise. And you just mentioned about the fact that Hong Kong is going to play indeed a very critical cog in terms of how uh, maritime shipping uh, grows uh, within the greater area. But Shanghai's niche, uh, obviously, is that driving force, that, 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 uh, that dragon's head in that burgeoning Yangtze River Delta. So when we talk about, when one talks about the Shanghai International Maritime Center, in fact, today, it basically means Shanghai, Ningbo, and Josan uh, combined, plus that whole hinterland, uh, you know, that the Yangtze reaches. You can see that, you know, you would talk about Cape Size, bulk areas, you know, they go all the way into, they'll go all the way, way past Jiang Yin and Zhang Jiagang. So both areas, both areas, I feel, have their niches. Where there are common overlaps, I feel that uh, they they basically will be addressing their own areas. One thing that I that I that that we have uh, worked with Shanghai on is, in fact, uh, uh, we about two or three years ago we actually we established a uh, a joint kind of a uh, research endeavor uh, in the sense that we try to identify each other's strengths and weaknesses so that there are areas that we can enhance and there's areas that we can lean on each other. Um, we um, uh, uh, you know the fact that uh, you know uh, there there's also uh, there there there's also a uh, I know an intention in terms of working with Shanghai so that that one one of their maritime days uh, is actually going to be held in Hong Kong so that relationship is very tight and then of course at the end of the day as you mentioned Hong Kong ship owners for the most part the traditional ones do hail from Shanghai so there is in at the same time there is a bit of a continuity. A bit of a legacy there also as well, and the fact that we are now Hong Kong, the traditional owners are here in in here in southern China. It basically means we are actually bringing some of Shanghai's entrepreneurial spirit uh, down here to southern China. So you know these are two magic swords, and uh, crossing them together, you know, I'm sh I I am very confident we'll be seeing some wonderful things happen. Heng, you've taken Wakong. Uh really expanded their business interests in China uh, over the years, training, ship management, everything like that. I mean, do you think Hong Kong shipping has still got a lot to give to the mainland or is now the mainland so uh, advanced that we're, it's a, a symbiotic relationship? I think first of all, if I can just go back to your previous question, um, what Kenneth has already gone to some length in answering is that I do, do not see Hong Kong and Shanghai as necessarily competitors and I don't 
increasingly tend to see Shanghai or Hong Kong alone as maritime cities. I think it's much more helpful to look at Shanghai as a center of a very great blossoming and growing maritime cluster. And same with Hong Kong. And if we sort of look at Hong Kong as the center of this maritime cluster, where does it extend to? Well, it extends naturally into the Greater Bay Area. So for example, that will include places like Shenzhen, Guangzhou, and all, all, all the other municipal um, areas encompassed under the nine plus two cities within the GBA with Hong Kong at the very center. So I see the weaving of Hong Kong into the GBA very much as the future mm -hmm. for the maritime of the, the development of the maritime cluster in Southern China. And to add to what Kenneth was saying, um, while I see that in the foreseeable future, Hong Kong and Shanghai, these two maritime clusters will remain the driving force of uh, the development of the ocean economy uh, in China. We mustn't neglect that in the north, there is a third maritime cluster yeah. with Qingdao, Dalian, and if you extend further, Beijing as well. And I do not see each of them competing with each other because I think if you look at China as um, a major maritime country, if you look at the size of uh, and the variety of shipping activities happening in each of these hubs, there is enough activity to sustain each of their own growth. But indeed, the, the role for each of them is slightly different, if I can put it in a very, very simplistic terms. Um, Northern China with Beijing in the center is maybe more policy driven. Uh, Shanghai would be the most open um, place and most highly commercially developed shipping center for China. And, and that is situated um, very strategically, middle China. Um, Hong Kong and uh, the South, we are still a little bit more open um, with a completely different um, legal system and with a much more open financial structure, which Shanghai cannot replicate. So I do think that each of us play a different role. And we're still in Hong Kong. It's still very much the sort of gateway to the rest of the world. I mean, you've got, as Richard pointed out earlier, all of the international banks are setting up here. It, it is still easier to set up uh, as an overseas company to have your headquarters for Greater China uh, based in Hong Kong. I mean, so is Hong Kong's role going to be enhanced in the coming years uh, as China heads inexorably towards uh, being the world's largest economy? I should very much hope so. Um, since a couple of years ago, um, as Kenneth has already mentioned, um, Hong Kong SOA has been working very closely with uh, our counterparties in China, um, most particularly with Shanghai, because this is where most of the families come from. So we have a natural affinity, we have natural connection with Shanghai. But recently, since two years ago, the SOA, particularly the Hong Kong, uh, the China subcommittee has now a two-pronged approach as Kenneth mentioned. So on the one side, under Kenneth, we're looking at Shanghai. And on the other hand, under myself, we're looking at how to extend Hong Kong's competitive advantages to work closer with our counterparties within the GBA. So over the last couple of years, as you no doubt are fully informed and very much aware of, um, we think that there is scope and a need for Hong Kong to extend our um, human talent resources, our professional knowledge into the GPA, and maybe pioneer in creating a new model for maritime education. 
Um, I think the advantages of Chinese seed areas, um, because Hong Kong, China has such a strong uh, national policy on important issues such as health, has been made very evident to the rest of the world over the past year or so. And therefore, I think more than it has been for some time, Chinese seafarers are now heavily sought after. And therefore, there is a strong argument, in my view, for extending um, Chinese educational facilities, but more more than that, actually enhancing and upgrading how you go about education. And in the rest of China, because they have to abide by the national curriculum, there is a limit to how much you can drive education reform. Whereas in the GBA area, because of the Hong Kong connection, we can bring a lot of international best practices. We can sort of broker new partnerships with international um, universities in a way that it will be hard to replicate, even in Shanghai. So that's just one example. Uh, another example, of course, is uh, something that will be talked about, no doubtly, at length later today. It's uh, how to continue Hong Kong's role as a major financial center. Um, earlier this year, um, the Hong Kong government has already passed the, a new uh, leasing bill to encourage um, ship leasing companies to set up headquarters or operational offices in Hong Kong. And recently, uh, about two months ago, um, BIMCO has pinpointed Hong Kong as a fourth uh, arbitration center in their arbitration clause. So I think these are all evident um, advantages where Hong Kong can look to extend our advantages into the Greater Bay Area or into China through the Greater Bay Area. Richard, your uh, career has involved you being involved with both education, technology, as well as uh, uh, good old shipping. I mean. The, the Greater Bay Area is very much being promoted as a, a, as a technology uh, development and that's all the fintech and everything that's going on there. Uh, you know, we're all embracing this very enthusiastically, but shipping, it is actually quite an old industry. I mean, are we going to get left behind, do you think? I don't think so, Tim. Um, I think uh, Shenzhen is well described as uh, China's Silicon Valley. Um, I think one of the, the two big mega trends for shipping are probably the decarbonization of shipping. And secondly, the move, uh, I think in a longer term, but a move towards autonomous ships. And we're already seeing examples of the first autonomous ships uh, appearing now in Europe. I think Hong Kong's proximity to the technology centers in the Greater Bay Area will only enhance, if you like, our own potential to do things. and 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 specifically on your point about competition and cooperation and, uh, and, and certain cooperation. Um, I think people will sometimes overlook, they talk about different maritime centers in Europe. You've got Oslo, you've got London, you've got Hamburg and, and so on. But you know, Europe has a population of 400 million. Uh, China has a population of 1.4 billion. And the growth rate in China is significantly greater than in Europe. I think this year, the Eurozone economy is uh, forecast to reduce by about uh, seven or eight uh, percent, sadly, because of COVID. China's is forecast to grow by two percent. So, uh, you know, Hong Kong is in a very fortuitous position. And it's good that we're prodded on by Shenzhen. It's good that we're prodded on by Shanghai. There's plenty to do, uh, and, and we're on the way to doing it. Thanks very much. Well, we're coming towards the end of this session. Uh, and uh, I think, that, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you all for it. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, you're able to put a pretty positive spin on, on the whole future prospects of Hong Kong. 
Uh, I mean, just finally, Richard, you've got, uh, as the chairman of the Maritime Museum, uh, I mean, it's preserving our great shipping industry, uh, the history of it, and it's educating locals and visitors alike. Uh, as a shipping community, what do we need to do to get more attention to attract both talent and capital to our industry? Well, I think we've got to keep telling the story, uh, Tim, and uh, perhaps um, we, we, we hide our light a bit under the bushel. I think your presentation was a great start because it puts in context where we are today. So you juxtaposed the success of YK Pau in building the world's largest fleet and then selling, you said, 140 ships in five years just before the market turned to toast, which it does from time to time. And you didn't mention, but you know, he went on to reinvest his fortune in property. And no doubt for the time he can come into become back into shipping. But it's not just YK Pau. We've got two other very prominent ship owners uh, on our call. You mentioned Pacific Basin that took themselves over four years from a market capitalization in 2004 of 300 million up close to 4 billion in 2008. So I think Hong Kong's well equipped to, yeah. to ride those cycles. So, in short, we've got to keep telling the story. We've got to keep stressing to our government the importance of investing in the key skill sets that are going to make the, the ship owners of the future. But uh, I'm quite sure we're going to get there, Tim. And uh, as chief relic of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, I see that as a key part of my role. Ping, any last views of the future? I think there are two, two sides of looking at it. Um, on the one hand, we have to consider the traditional maritime talent, particularly seafarers. Is Hong Kong going to produce a lot of seafarers in the future? Probably not. Um, where are they going to come from? Going back to your earlier point, that Hong Kong is one of the biggest, if not the biggest ship management centers in the world, managing um, thousands of ships. Um, the answer to that is, we can bring in a lot of talent and we recruit, recruit and train and educate a lot of seafarers just across the border in Shenzhen or elsewhere in the GBA. And by showing career path, planning the career path and reforming education in a well thought out manner, we can actually show people coming into the maritime industry. And that goes back to your point of attracting talents as well, that their career does not end with them becoming a captain, but they can come on shore to become superintendents and maybe eventually even run major shipping companies. So that's on the one side of uh, traditional maritime talent. But going back to the point of innovation, I think you know the biggest changing changes and challenges facing our industry are related to regulations, environmental regulations in particular, but also in terms of digitization. Now, changes often happen times when the scale is relatively small. And a lot of these disruptions are being brought about by startup companies, people who start with a completely fresh perspective on a fresh plate. Hong Kong is extremely well placed as a financial center and an international financial center at that to incubate and develop and embrace a lot of these changes. So I think Hong Kong can also offer new prospects of uh, career development, career path related to technology. And I think that's something that is yet to be properly explored. But thank you very much. Well, we've got to draw a line on things now. Uh, we've run out of time. Great shame. We couldn't go on for a long time. Uh, Heng, Richard, Kenneth, as always, great to talk to you. And thank you very much. Nicholas, back to you. Well, all I can say is a tremendous thank you. This was an amazing session and uh, it could not be a better introduction to the forum. Uh, 
So thank you very much to all four of you for an amazing, an amazing uh, brain power and, um, and help. Thanks, thank thanks you. so much, Nicholas. Thank you, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right.